This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what do you think of when you hear me read this Bible verse? Well, you probably think of the Lord Jesus uttering those words while he hung on the cross, as recounted in Matthew chapter 27. And of course, he did say that. But that's not where the Bible first records those words of the Lord. They first appear in Psalm 22, verse 1, the prophetic song of David that foretold what the Lord Jesus would utter a thousand years in the future when he finally came to die for our sins as prophesied. Think about how amazing that is. And this is, of course, just one of many many, many messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament. Even the risen Lord told his disciples in Luke 24, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What should we understand about messianic prophecy and its significance? Well, we're going to tackle that today with Dr. Michael Radelnik, who is professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He is also general editor of a wonderful new book that we're going to discuss. It's called the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, and it is subtitled studies and expositions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Dr. Rodelnik, it is just great to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. What would you say is the importance of Messianic prophecy in the Bible? Why do you think it matters so much that we understand this subject? Well, to begin with, obviously the Lord Jesus staked his Messianic claim on the fact that he was the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes. And then when we look at the book of Acts, there's only two primary messages that the apostles gave. And the first was that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. And the second was that he was risen from the dead. So really, the two-pronged approach of proclamation of the gospel in the book of Acts, was one of them was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. So obviously, it's crucial in that sense. But also, I think it's really important for us uh, personally, spiritually, how many of us, I think, uh, when we think about our faith and we have doubts, uh, and I think everyone does, where do we turn? What do we do? Well, in Matthew 11, when, when John the Baptist was having some doubts, there he was in prison, and he sends his disciples and says to, they say to the Lord Jesus, he wants to know, are you the promised one or should we look for another? Hmm. The Lord Jesus says, look, and he points out the healings that he's doing and the gospel being preached. What he was doing, actually, was pointing to two messianic predictions, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. And he was saying, in essence, I have fulfilled the prophecies. And so it seems to me that as we struggle with issues like doubt and as we seek to proclaim the good news, messianic prophecy is central. 
Oh, it is. Uh, it's so hard to argue with it, even if you're talking to a non-Christian when you're pointing out what Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 9 or some of these passages. And, and you bring this to the attention of a non-Christian, maybe in particular a Jew, it gets interesting when you discuss these things. And you say, how in the world could Isaiah have known this so far back in time and then it's completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ? I mean, that's a very powerful argument because it's so evidential. Yes, it's it's one of the strongest evidences we have. I knew a guy, oh, many years ago, he worked in the Motor Vehicle Bureau in the state capital of Ohio, and it was when computers were first kind of becoming in vogue. But anyway, he had become a follower of Jesus. He typed out Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12, that very important suffering servant, uh, servant of the Lord passage, and he typed it out, printed it up, no references. It was just like one long poem, a uh, 15-verse poem, and uh, he brought it to every single person that worked with him there, about 200 people. <laughs> and he said, who is this poem speaking of, and who do you think wrote it? Where does it come from? <laughs> and everyone, every single person, both Jewish people and non-Jewish people, said, oh, that's obviously about Jesus. It comes from the New Testament. From the New Testament. Oh, man. And, <laughs> and of course, he then told them. It was Isaiah 700 B.C., uh, and it foretold Jesus. And it was... For both Jew, as you say, for Jewish people, that's like, what? Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament? And then even for non-Jews, people who aren't Jewish, they're like, wow, there's something supernatural about that. There is. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful uh, way of communicating the truth. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting. You point out in your book very early on that it's become accepted in critical scholarship that this whole concept of a messianic deliverer didn't develop until the second century BC, which obviously is not the case. But how do we know that there was a clearly intended messianic message back in the Old Testament? Well, one of the key ways, there's a wonderful chapter in the book. It was written by Seth Postel, who's a messianic Jew, and he's the dean of Israel College of the Bible. And he calls it the Old Testament in the Old Testament. <laughs> and what, one of the things that he shows is that the Old Testament itself reads itself as messianic. Uh, so when, when the writers in the later prophets are looking back at earlier prophecies, they are almost confirming the truth of messianism in the Hebrew Bible. And so I think that, that that's interesting that someone like uh, Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel 21, looks back at Genesis 49.10 in the Torah, in the Law of Moses, and reads it in a messianic way. And so uh, there's about 900 years separating Moses from Ezekiel, and yet uh, in the progress of Revelation, the later prophets read the earlier ones messianically. I think that's the the argument I would put forward. That is neat. I didn't realize that that was the case, but that is fascinating. That's really a strong argument. Why, why is it that in academia, I mean, this is a general question I could ask on a lot of subjects, but in academia, why are they... Why are they skeptical of the Messiah and Messianic predictions and the Messianic Deliverer being present and talked about in the Old Testament? What is the reason that they have that position? Well, it seems to me in critical scholarship, in academia, there's an anti-supernatural bent. Hmm. I would say that. Yeah. And, and then what's happening with uh, our evangelical scholarship you're going to be shocked to find this out. That many evangelical scholars go to secular schools for their PhDs, right. and they will lose all credibility 
uh, with their dissertation mentors and with their colleagues if they don't buy into what they're being taught at these secular schools. And so as a result, they came in and they began to, they came up with a new approach. They said, well, Isaiah didn't know that he was writing about the Messiah. He was writing about something in his own day. He probably was writing about Israel as the suffering servant. And then in the intertestamental period, this idea arose when when the Davidic dynasty was not restored after the captivity in the intertestamental period. Oh, that they came up with a messianic idea. And then the New Testament writers, because of the Holy Spirit leading them, showed them that there's a second meaning about the Messiah, not one that the author intended, <laughs> but it's a secondary uh, dual meaning. And well, of course, what kind of evidence is that? None. Uh, that, that they're taking the verses out of context in a way that we ought not to do, that we can't reproduce because uh, we, we, we want to have our academic credibility and uh, include the idea of a secondary meaning. So to what extent has evangelicalism been infiltrated with this kind of mentality among scholars? I mean, how widespread is that? I think it's pretty widespread. I, you know, I have never done a survey. I, I you know, I went to some of the best evangelical schools around and uh i was i was kind of taken aback uh at how many of my old testament professors didn't see the messianic hope in the hebrew bible as a direct prediction uh they they saw it in this typological or dual meaning way but not in that direct prediction and it was i was in my doctoral program when i got to study with john salehammer who's now with the lord yeah uh, many people might know him only from that NIV compact Bible commentary that he did, which is kind of popular. But he was a great, probably the best Old Testament scholar ever. And that was one of his big issues, was to sh- see, to read the Hebrew Bible as a text, to read it as we would literature. And then we would see the Messiah there, and he was the one making the case. I was so glad I got to study with him. It confirmed what I believed. That's awesome. He was crucial. We dedicated the book to him. Well, hang on a moment. We'll come back with Dr. Michael Radelnik. His book is The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. From Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine comes American Underdog. Undrafted out of college, quarterback Kurt Warner found himself stocking grocery shelves while trying to hold on to his dream to play in the NFL. I have been working for this my entire life. God is going to do something great with you. Based on the true story, American Underdog. Rated PG. Panel guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere Christmas Day. More information is available at AmericanUnderdogInspires.com. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. 
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only five or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. And also great to have with us Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute and General Editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. What an awesome book this is. I mean, I am so enjoying Dr. Rodelnik going through all of this and all these essays. It is such important information for every Christian to read and really to be able to dig into the Bible more fully on this issue of Messianic Prophecy. I'm curious because I've heard a lot of different numbers on this, but would you put the number of Messianic Prophecies at a firm number, and some people say over 200, I've heard as many as 400. How many are there, would you say, in your estimation? You know, I I don't want to even put a number, about 100 articles. I probably deal with about 80 passages, 85 passages, Uh, but there are more than that. uh, The initial marketing for this book said every passage, every Messianic passage. (laughs) Well, no, we, we can't possibly get to that. Here's why, I mean, it's 1,400 pages already, uh, but the, the reason I would say there's more than less is when the Lord Jesus said the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, Psalms representing the writings, the whole Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, Torah, under the Im Ketuvim, that's where we get the word uh, law, prophets, and writings. That's the Hebrew word for the Old Testament. Uh, it's an acronym. He didn't mean just individual predictive verses. What he meant is that in the DNA, in the, in the very story of the Bible, it, it looks forward to a Messiah. Let me give you an example. In 2 Samuel 7, David is promised a descendant who will have an eternal house, kingdom, and throne. Then when we look at the book of First Second Kings, there's really no individual predictions. But yet what we see is... Every king is raised up, and they're compared to David. Is he like his father David? Is he not like his father David? Is he? And there's only eight good kings, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And then you come to the end of Second Kings, and they're in captivity, and no one has fulfilled that promise that God made to David. And the purpose of First Second Kings is to say, okay, God made this promise in Second Samuel to David. It's not yet been fulfilled. Keep looking. Hmm. And so the idea there, it's, it's in the story itself. It doesn't have to, it's sort of, I, I like to call First Second Kings a history of messianic miscalculations, <laughs> because every king comes up and we think, is this the son of David that was spoken of? And then the reader looks back and says, nope, not him, not him. <laughs> then we come to the end of the book, we have to keep looking. So it's not individual predictions so much as, uh, well, even more so, it's in the very story of the Bible. 
Yeah, that's the that is a great point. Well, and when you look at the term Messiah itself, there's been a lot of discussion about what the Jewish people were expecting in terms of a Messiah. You know, was he to be the suffering servant? They didn't really think that. We talk about what happened in the New Testament and the doubts and so forth. But what do we understand about the term Messiah and what that encompasses regarding who he will be and who the Jewish people should expect to see? Yeah, well, the, the word Messiah itself comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. It means anointed one. It was used of an anointed priest. It, it's used of uh, any person uh, to be anointed is to be separated for some kind of special service to God. Even Cyrus the Great, whom God anointed, his anointed one, to be the ones to allow the Jewish people. In Isaiah 45, it says he's been anointed to uh, bring the Jewish people back from captivity. So the word is used that way, but it, it develops this special meaning of a particular anointed one from the house of David who will rule with righteousness. And it's used, I don't know, 10, 12 times in the Hebrew Bible in that very technical sense of this special one uh, serving God from the line of David. But then there are other terms that develop that refer to the same person, like the branch, for example, uh, and uh, there are the branch who will redeem Israel. You can read about him in Zechariah 3, for example, and Zechariah 6, uh, and Jeremiah 23. Uh, you, can, you can see other terms that develop, like the servant of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are four servant songs in Isaiah, and there's this particular servant of the Lord, and there's the one to whom it belongs in Genesis 49. So there's other titles that develop as well, and they all refer to the special king that God had anointed. Right. So many different titles come up throughout the Old Testament. You talk about some of these son of God and son of man and wonderful counselor, of course, we see in Isaiah, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, that's another one. And that's really key because that's getting into the nitty gritty of what the Lord would do when he finally was resurrected on our behalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what? I'll tell you which term I like, because I think most people misunderstand it, but it was Jesus' favorite title. And so if the Lord Jesus wants to use this for himself, maybe we ought to pay attention it's the Son of Man yes. from Daniel chapter 7. In the scene in heaven in Daniel 7, there's the Ancient of Days. He's obviously a vision, not we couldn't actually see God, but he's a vision of God the Father. And there are thrones. There's another throne set up. There's a throne for the Ancient Days, and there's thrones for another one. And this figure comes before him, and he is one like a son of man. It doesn't say he's the son of man. He's like a son of man, meaning he looks human, but he has a throne next to the Ancient of Days. Obviously, he is deity. Wow. And this one is promised that he will come and he will reign. He will descend from the clouds and he will reign over the saints uh, forever. And so you've got this title, Son of Man, which many of us think just refers to his humanity, but the the context in Daniel 7 indicates deity and humanity, one like a son of man. Yeah. And, uh, and, of course, the Lord Jesus keeps using that of himself. And if, if we miss the point that this is a, refer- a reference to deity at his trial, uh, the high priest asks the Lord Jesus in Matthew, he says, uh, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And what's the Lord Jesus' answer? You will see the son of man descending from uh, on high from, in the clouds sending from the clouds. Yeah. And, and the high priest looks at him and doesn't say, you just called yourself a man. He says, no, 
he tears his garment. He says, you've just committed blasphemy. You've made yourself out to be God because the Son of Man is a divine title. He knew. So, yeah. And so uh, that's why I believe the Lord Jesus uses the term Son of Man of himself. It really has the implication of God-man. Well, and, uh, 100% God, 100% man. That's great. Well, and of course, in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, you've got references to the Messiah being deity. They're, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, the references yes. to mighty God. Did the Jewish people expect the Messiah to be God? Because when you talk when you talk about how the reaction went down when they were saying Jesus is putting himself equal with God, was it the case that most of the Jewish people did not expect the Messiah to be God the Son? Well, the argument is that there, and I've heard this from some really fine evangelical scholars, that there's no concept of deity of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Wow. And if there was, the Jewish people would have been expecting a a divine Messiah. But my response to that would be there are hints of the idea of a divine Messiah in ancient Jewish literature, so there was something. However, here's what I think happened. The Jewish people went into captivity for idolatry. Hmm. And it was a, a terrible, painful lesson. And though I can't say that my people always obeyed and responded to God perfectly after the captivity, they did have idolatry driven from them. And then in that intertestamental period in the early centuries, they were very concerned not to fall into that trap of idolatry. And I believe that what they did is they shifted their understanding of those Old Testament passages that talk about a divine Messiah because they didn't want to get in trouble. Oh, wow. Well, and so yeah. uh, I do think that initially when those were written, they were looking for a divine Messiah. By the time we get to the later writings that we see on commentaries on Isaiah, mentions in the Talmud and the, and the Mishnah, it's in the midrash. It's no longer looking for a divine messiah because yeah. it's fearful. What What about this? You mentioned this a couple of minutes ago. I wanted to follow up with this because I think this is an important thing. When you're talking about the scholars, and I've heard people say this before that there was one meaning that Isaiah had in mind, but there was a second shadowy meaning that you know came down. What do you make of that way of doing hermeneutics in regard yeah. to messianic prophecy? That you know these men had no idea what they were writing. It was all secret. It needed. It was code, and somehow we needed to decode it down the road. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, I think that, first of all, I would say Isaiah 48, 16 is pretty clear. It says, from the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. That's what <laughs> God says, the one who's the first and the last. Great verse. I've not spoken in secret. He is not one to hide truth. He wants us to see it. Uh, secondly, I, I really do believe that the prophets understood what they were writing about. They didn't know. First Peter 1, a verse that people often say, that the prophets didn't know what they were writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they, they anxiously saw it. They were looking to see what time or person uh, that, that they wrote of. Well, they didn't know when he would come. That's the time. They didn't know who he would be. They didn't know it would be Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of of Mary and the adopted son of Joseph. They didn't know that. They didn't know the referent, but they knew the Messiah was coming. It says it was revealed to them that they weren't speaking for their days, but for later days. So the the point is that they really did understand. And just think about the problem that we would have with inspiration. The whole idea of, of an inspired, God-breathed text is that the Holy Spirit moved men, right, yes. to write God's very words, yes. and he used their personalities, he used their thoughts. It was uh, a sort of a, 
a combination work of a human and divine book. And the point of this is that if the authors themselves didn't know what the Holy Spirit meant, how is that confirmation of the truth of their books? Hmm. The Holy Spirit could mean something utterly different, out of context and untrue, then then we're really kind of jeopardizing our whole concept of the inspiration of the Bible. That's an excellent point. That's a good one to remember to bring up if somebody starts to make that argument again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that makes total sense. And what I find really interesting, I was privileged enough to hear you speak just recently at this conference put on by the Preacher Research Center, and you were talking about... You were fin- there? Janet? I was there. I didn't get a chance to talk to you, and I so wanted to. That's why we said... Oh, up. I'm so sorry. You yeah. know, it's been a long time since we've met in person. I so know. I'm sorry. I miss seeing you. Well, I'll tell you what, when we come back from this break, I want to get into what you talked about at that wonderful conference. Dr. Michael Rodelnik, we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host. Janet Mefford. Well, what a great book, the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy Studies and Expositions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. General Editor, Dr. Michael Rodelnik is joining me, and I was saying before the break, Dr. Rodelnik, I was privileged to be able to hear you speak recently on this topic of finding Messiah in unexpected places, and I have to say, that was one of the best things I've ever heard on the whole subject of Messianic Prophecy. Because, <laughs> well, you. you know, we stick with things like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and here you were dealing with passages like in Joel. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Because Joel three two thirty, I'm sorry, two twenty three was yeah. the passage that you were talking about. Would you do that again? Because I think everybody listening would just be fascinated at what you were talking about. Sure. Well, it's it's uh, it was kind of surprising to me. I was working on the Holman Christian Standard Translation, and uh, my I don't know if you saw in the book. There's my co-editor. Ed Bloom. Yes. He was the general editor of that translation. Great translation. And I was his graduate assistant when I went to graduate school. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, Ed said to me, no English. When you're translating, one of the books I did was Joel, uh, sort of to turn in, only Hebrew. <laughs> and so I did that. Uh, and so uh, what happened was... I came to this passage and I thought, I don't remember ever reading that, because it doesn't say that in the English Bible. And so uh, here's what the verse says, and even I couldn't even get him to translate it right. I finally convinced him in this article I did in the book, but uh, uh, he would not uh, go with my translation uh, in the HCSB. It says, children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God. And then it says, because he gives you autumn rain for your vindication. Right. Well, in Hebrew, it doesn't say autumn rain for your vindication. It says, because he will give you the teacher for righteousness. <laughs> and it is a remarkable verse, because the promise was that there would be another teacher like Moses, a prophet like Moses. And here, many years later, Joel is saying that in the end of days, during the great messianic kingdom, he will give us a teacher for righteousness, and then it follows up by saying he'll send showers for you 
both autumn and spring rain as before. And I was, I was kind of taken with that because one of the great promises of the kingdom when the king comes is that the kingdom will operate right and we'll get the rain uh, at the, in due season. And then that's exactly what Isaiah says. Uh, it also promises that there will be a teacher that will come to us and he will guide us and show us how we're to walk. And then it says, uh, and this one, uh, in Isaiah 31, I believe it is, uh, this one uh, will, will guide us. He'll say, walk this way. He'll walk behind us and tell us the way to walk. And then uh, what will happen? The rains will come, hmm. the appropriate rain uh, in due season, a parallel passage to this. So uh, it is really a remarkable uh, verse, and it was unexpected. I didn't know it was there. Great. And I'm really happy. Uh, I wasn't even going to write the article about that in the, uh, in the, in the book, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the guy that had signed up couldn't do it, and so I did it at the last minute, and I loved doing it. Let me read you the verse in Isaiah, just so you know. It says, the Lord, this is Isaiah 30, verse 20, the Lord will give you meager bread and water during oppression, but your teacher will not hide himself any longer. Your eyes will see your teacher, and whenever you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. And then it goes on to say, he will, in verse 23, then he will send rain for your seed that you have sown in the ground. And so he promises rain once again when that king will come. That's a great find. Of course, the obvious question becomes, how do you mess it up so badly in a lot of these English translations? I mean, autumn rain, autumn rain for your vindication and teacher for righteousness don't sound anything alike. How in the world did yeah. we get the bad translations? The word litzdaka, uh, uh, or for righteousness, uh, it comes from the Hebrew word tzedek, and it never, ever, in any place in the whole Bible, ever is used of anything other than moral righteousness. It doesn't have any idea of vindication ever, anywhere. It's a bad translation. But the reason is that there's, there seems to be a textual variant in the second half of the verse where the word for rain, which should be yire, apparently, the scribe, when he was copying that, he, instead of doing yore, which is the word for rain, he put more, which is the word for teacher. So either you have to translate a teacher twice, teacher for righteousness, he will send you uh, teacher and latter rain, or you could recognize that there is a variant or a, a scribal error, and the second word should be not more, but yure. But instead what they do is they... They take a word, more, and they translate it rain, which it should never be translated. Boy, so. you see, and this gives laymen a little bit of nervousness because now we're saying, where, where else in my particular translation might they have mistranslated something that would yield a great gem like that? Yeah. Well, you know, here's one of the things that I discovered. I really tell this to people who, who don't know uh, textual criticism, like the little variant readings and things like that. This isn't a variant reading. It's just a bad translation. The second half has the variant reading. But just read lots of English translations. Get one of those books that has all the translations. Or go online. There's all these websites that have all the translations. One of the things that I find when I'm studying something, when I find something that has, because there are, there are probably four or five uh, translations in English that translated this as Teacher for Righteousness, when I find something like that, I only found that as I began to read different versions, but when I'm reading any passage in the Bible, and I see, wait a minute, 
most translate it this way, but wait, there's variants, there's different approaches, there's different translations that are significantly different. Now I know I better go do some study. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Well, another passage that you talked about with a lesser known Messianic prophecy was in 2 Samuel 23. Mm -hmm. That was fascinating. And you talked about David as prophet. And Mm -hmm. I, I think when people think of David, they don't often you know, come up immediately and say, oh, you know, David was a prophet. They, they think Jesus came out of the line of David. David, David was the king, all yeah. the rest. Why is that a significant messianic passage? Well, I, first of all, let me just say, Isaiah was from the house of David. So if there were people in the royal house that did serve as prophets. Of course, yeah. David was a prophet. Uh, and it says that, uh, now this is a verse, uh, just to go back a little bit, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it's from about the second century BC. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the first bit of background. Yeah. Second bit of background that people need to know is that Hebrew was written without vowels. Okay. Yes. The vowels are uh, are sort of these little lines and dots that are put underneath the letters. Okay, mm-hmm. but they weren't written that way. In fact, they were only put in in the Middle Ages, our Middle Ages. So uh, we have to be alert to that. And sometimes the Septuagint reads the Hebrew Bible when they translated it as if there might have been a different accent to be understood in that word. And so uh, to to just simplify it, uh, this says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of of the man raised on high, that's how it is with the vowel that's put in in the Hebrew Bible today, since the Middle Ages, uh, the oracle of the one uh, anointed, uh, the, the one anointed by the God of Jacob, uh, the delightful one of the songs of Israel. But if you read it with a different vowel, the way the Septuagint did, it's the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, oracle is a prophetic oracle, the oracle of the man raised concerning the Messiah of the God of Jacob, Mm. the delightful subject of the songs of Israel. Hmm. And so what this says is David was, when he was talking about this stuff, he was writing about the Messiah. Hmm. And of course, that will help us read the book of Psalms a little differently, don't you think? Oh, for sure. And then it says, well, David, how did you know? He says, well, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Yeah. So I, I was a prophet. Then he says, well, what were you talking about? He spoke about one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God. And it talks about how beautiful his reign will be. And then verse 5, many versions translate it wrong, but the New King James, for example, gets it right. And the Old King James, it says, for not so is my house with God. He says, I'm not that righteous king. There's another one coming. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Well, we're going to pause for one more break. Dr. Michael Rodelnik, my guest, we're discussing the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. There's more to come. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. A mother's womb has now become the unsafest place in America, with abortion being the leading cause of death and babies being aborted up to term in some states. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. 
Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, helping moms choose life. You see, when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hit a heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help save 400 babies by the end of this year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. And now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving 10 babies' lives. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers around the world for only $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, it's wonderful to dig into the Old Testament and all those messianic prophecies. It just confirms how amazing the Bible is and how amazing it was that God sent us his son. Dr. Michael Rodelnik is with us, general editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. And we were discussing 2 Samuel 23. You were talking about this being a lesser known messianic prophecy here. And you were particularly talking about uh, verse five. Now I'm looking at the NASB. That's what I have right here that I'm looking at. And it translates, it truly is not my house so with God. You, you however, said there was a different, a better way of saying it, a more accurate way of saying it. Actually, that's a wrong translation. In Hebrew, there's something called an interrogative hey. Uh, it uses a Hebrew letter hey under the word not. Uh, it would be halo uh, instead of lo uh, to ask a statement of fact question. Hmm. Uh, if you were to say, is not my house so with God, you would have to have the interrogative hey. But it doesn't have it. Hmm. This is just a bad translation. It should say, for not so. Not in this way is my house with God. I'm not the righteous king. And the, the reason I think that verse 5 is translated that way is because people uh, are, have ad- accepted the medieval Jewish version of the Hebrew text, where at the beginning David says he's writing about himself. You know? Yeah. But if we take the more ancient uh, vowel pointing of that Hebrew text then what it is, is David is writing about the Messiah. But in order to harmonize with verse 1, I think people will mistranslate verse 5. Understandable. Uh, that, that's interesting. And you tied it, too, to Acts chapter 2 with Peter's sermon. And this was great. I, I really loved what you had to say about this, because yeah. he was talking about Second Samuel 23 as his interpretive guide in that sermon. Yeah. Isn't that great? When Peter yeah. starts talking about uh, Psalm 16, he says... Uh, that this was not David. Uh, that's one of the first things he says. David is dead and buried. Uh, 
but, and so that's what David says, this is not David. But then Peter said, but David knew this because he was a prophet. Right, right. Just like David says, how do you know this? The word of God, the word of the Lord was on my tongue. So he says, first, it's not about David. Second, he says that he was a prophet. He knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. That's another thing that you'll see in that passage in Second Samuel 23 that I skipped over before. David says, well, David, how do you know this king is coming? You know, in that little poem that he has, he says, but God made an oath. God made a covenant with me that's firm and unbreakable. And here, uh, what does Peter say? He was a prophet. He knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. And seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. It's almost as if Peter studied Second Samuel 23 to understand the Psalms. Yeah. Get the author's intention. And by the way, do you know who taught Peter Messianic prophecy? Who? The Lord Jesus. Luke I, th- I thought it was a trick question. I thought the Lord, but who was? Yeah. There's someone else I should be answering. Yeah. yeah. This is this is great. You know, when when the disciples gather in the upper room, he told them, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Yes. And he says, "This is what was written." And so uh, he taught them. I was once, this is a true story, I was, uh, there was a professor that I was teaching with, and he, we were in the same school, and he was teaching his class that Psalm 16 has nothing to do with the resurrection of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So a student raised his hand and said, listen, Peter seemed to think it was predicting the resurrection of the Messiah. And this professor said, well, I, I wouldn't agree with Peter's hermeneutics, his <laughs> Peter's interpretive method. And... And so then the student came to me and said, what would you think about this? I said, well, I would agree with Peter's professor of interpretation. (laughs) Right. He knows something about it. Yeah. I think think the Lord Jesus got that. Can I also say, when you were going through and talking a little bit about Peter's sermon in Acts 2, that phrase in verse 31, seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. That seems to be something you could use with these academics who say, oh, they had no idea what they were talking about back in the Old Testament. Of course, but they wouldn't agree with Peter's hermeneutics. True. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Good point. <laughs> they always yeah. have an out somehow yeah. whenever there's a yeah. Yeah, yeah. little problem. Peter was saying the right thing from the wrong text. I got it. Say. I yeah, got so, it. Wow. Um, but anyway, it, it is it is remarkable when... Uh, can I just tell you one other story? Do we yeah, have a minute? sure. Okay. Uh, I was once um, doing a workshop at a, a congregation in California. This is a true story. And... Uh, I met a guy uh, who who said to me, you seem familiar, we was chatting, he was kind of annoying me because I was trying to get my stuff started, but it turned out he was my high school music teacher, wow. and he had become a believer. And when I asked him how he had become a believer, this is what he said back, back when I was in high school, he said there was uh, a, profess- a, a radio guy now who came and spoke about why Jews should not believe in Jesus. And some kid there kept picking up Messianic prophecy and responding. And the kid did a terrible job, but the kid had a lot of verses. Hmm. And uh, uh, he said, and so I went and got my Bible, and I read it for myself. And when I read the Bible, I, I saw that there was a prediction of the Messiah and that Jesus fulfilled it. I said, that's just great. He says, do you know who the kid was that did such a bad job <laughs> with that guest speaker? I said, yeah, I certainly know who he was. That was me. 
funny. And, oh. and 30 years I'd always waited uh, to try and uh, have another opportunity with that, that guy did such a bad job, but I don't need it now because Wait. the Lord used the word. <sighs> Just reading the word for himself uh, convinced this Jewish man to believe in Jesus. And you had a lot of verses, so that worked yeah, in your favor. <laughs> that, and that's, that's the most wonderful thing is, is when somebody picks up the Bible when you read some of these passages, even if you're coming as a complete non-believer, you don't have any you know, movement in the direction of wanting to become a believer, but it's hard to get around those passages. As you said before, the guy who put Isaiah as a poem and people said, oh, that's about Jesus. I mean, this just points out, it would seem using messianic prophecy for evangelism can be one of the most effective tools that we have. Yeah, I think so. And that's why the apostles used it. Um, it's not just limited to Jewish people either. I mean, I think it's great with Jewish people. Uh, I've had many Jewish people say to me, can you show me where it says in the, in the Old Testament about Jesus being the Messiah? And I always am happy to do it. But I talk to many people who are not Jewish, who are skeptical about the, the supernatural nature of the Bible <laughs> and its message. And one of the ways that confirms it is Messianic prophecy. And then that Jesus would come hundreds of years later and fulfill prophecies that he couldn't set up. He couldn't, unless he's God, set up that, that he would be born in Bethlehem. No. You know, so right. uh, the, the fact is, when he was born uh, and lived and died and rose again, it all was predicted uh, and that's why people believed in him. Yeah, that's right. Or being born of a virgin. He couldn't have yeah. really manipulated that. Yeah, couldn't arrange that unless he's God. Yes, <laughs> unless he's God. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Do you have a particular favorite prophecy when you are making an argument with someone who is trying to be convinced of you know, what, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah? Do you have some go-to passages that you think work yeah. the best or better than others? I, I think that the one paragraph or one, not paragraph, one section is Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through fifty-three twelve because it not only predicts exactly what Jesus would be like, he'd be ordinary, he'd be like a weed in the wilderness, mm. uh, but also that he would be rejected by his own people, that he would suffer a humiliating death, uh, that he would be raised from the dead, he would, it says he'll see the light of life, uh, and it explains why he would die. And that's this so crucial. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, basically, the idea that the Messiah would come and die for our wrong, for the sins that we've committed, and be raised again, and therefore we could be declared righteous, that passage says. That's, that's the most important message we have, and it's right there, 700 B.C., in Isaiah's servant song. It's so, so great. Yeah, exactly. And I I really appreciate this book because you go into so many different passages and you can see even in the table of contents, wow, there was more Messianic prophecy in this book than I knew. You know, for example, if, if people aren't familiar with it, oh, look at all the Psalms where you see all the Messianic references and Isaiah, of course, and, and Zechariah has a number of them as well. It's just, there's so many of them that it becomes really hard to deny that this is a supernatural book foretelling a supernatural Messiah. It's, it's even as a Christian, it's thrilling to read through it all. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. 
that you enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't meet at the, at the conference that we're at, didn't see each other. Uh, but uh, I, I, next time I'm there, you make sure you say hello. You got yeah. it. I know. I wanted so badly, but you were being, you know, swamped, and I didn't have a chance to get over there. I said, I'll get him on the radio. That's okay. That's we'll, we'll great. Try. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Radelnik. You are just so wonderful to have on, and I just love the book, The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. God bless you. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. All right. You take care. Again, the book, The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecies, really terrific resource. God bless you. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today. This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day.